are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. In this episode, we're going to hear some extraordinary revelations about the people that were in the cottage the night that Carr Cox died. I found a crucial clue to this here in this autobiography of a widely respected British modernist artist called Pip Benveniste in the company of a very comforting Isle malt whisky. I've just been transported back to the beginning of the Second World War, where Pip, Walker as she was then, is a little more than 18. She's working in a pacifist farming community in Cornwall, where she ends up being hired by a local farmer, a Mr Vaughan, to help look after his son. They fall in love and begin to live together. In this chapter, she describes how she remembers reading the newspaper reports about the death of Carr Cox at the cottage near Zena. And then she goes on to describe how, early in her new relationship with Mr Vaughan, he tells her that on the night Carr Cox died, he was actually there in the cottage. And what's more, that he knows exactly what happened. And there are more revelations to come about Alistair Crowley and his life in Cornwall. This will raise some important questions for Graham and for me. Can we get to some sort of truth, some version based on facts? Or really, is this just a beauty contest for the best story? This is episode five of One Dark Night. Hiya, hiya. Ah, Graham, finally. Where are you? Uh, I'm just having a walk, actually. It's a bit rainy, but uh, it's nice. Just getting out and clearing my head a bit. I listened to the interview. Difficult to know what to say, really. I felt... In some ways, I, I was kind of eavesdropping. But at the same time, I felt as though I'd been invited to experience it and I suppose that's what made it so emotional I didn't listen to it back um, I think it was kind of harrowing enough first time around to be honest but I'm hey I'm so glad we did it I mean it's been decades and we should have we should have had that conversation a long long time ago but hey we've had the conversation now and that's absolutely amazing so you're glad you did it Personally, yeah, really, really glad. And I think Mum's glad too, you know. it. She's been carrying a lot of stuff around, and we all know that, just airing it. I don't know what will happen, but I hope it's sort of the start of, of perhaps um, being able to talk about things and think about things a little bit more differently. Maybe process things, as people would say these days. You know, I, I said to Mum, I didn't think I wanted it, us to use this for the podcast. And I thought she would say the same thing. But she said something I hadn't really thought about, which was that um, nowadays, if people lose a child, um, it's talked about. Often counselling is available for people, or they seek that out. There are, there are ways of, of at least expressing the emotion and bringing that emotion into people's daily lives and, and finding, hopefully, finding a way of moving forward openly and together back in back in the day when mum lost Paul 
it was seen to be brave to hold your emotion in, to not cry at the funeral, to to just button up and get on with it. Um, and I think that has consequences. Um, that has consequences too. And when we spoke about this after doing it, she said she felt that the interview had a purpose beyond just us talking about things, um, which is that it publicizes how important it is to talk about these things and, and, and to get them out in the open and to seek help. Um, because I think she spent 60 years trying to deal with this pretty much alone and she regrets it. She regrets that. And she regrets not having the opportunity or to have lived in a culture and a time when the opposite was the case. So she wants us to use it. And I think it's more than that. It's, it's part of... It's central to the story that we're discovering as we go through this podcast, that that people's interest in the occult and clairvoyance and hauntings and, and all of, of those things... Yes, there, it's an interest in, in life and the afterlife, but it's more than that too. It, it is a part of the way we process grief and loss. Um, and we're discovering that, I think, in the story that we're, 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 un- we're telling, that's unfolding for us here, how the story, different stories of grief and loss have become kind of, some ways warped and become kind of mythology here in a larger landscape but there is a at the heart of this a true private story of of terrible loss and grief um that in some ways is is as powerful if not more powerful than than the myth it's contributed to Yeah, no, I'm on my way over to you now, uh, walking. Should have driven, really, because it's raining, but I'm on my way. (laughs) You must be soaked. Yeah, dripping, boy, yeah. Croft Andy dry drizzle, soaking right through. Listen, I found someone that I think you need to talk to. Me, I need to talk to somebody, okay, cool. About the couple, the young couple that were in the cottage that night, the Vaughns. Right, okay. I thought we pretty much discovered all there was to know about them. You know, that he went mad, she killed herself, and very sad. But so, what, what else? Well, as to give you a for instance, uh-huh. what if I were to tell you that that night in the cottage, their baby son was there. Oh, wow. So the, the version that Paul Newman tells is that the Vaughns were uh, followers of Alistair Crowley and that they performed various sorts of rituals in their cottage, uh, maybe with other people. He says they took drugs. He really paints uh, a very unpleasant picture of this couple engaging in all matter of all manner of satanic rituals, drug taking, 
uh, nefarious activities, mm. um, which is completely false. And that's just got no basis in fact. Anthony Diller is an author and academic. And while he was researching the so-called angry young men of the 1950s, he came across the author Paul Newman and went on to read the same book that we found, The Tregurthan Horror. The thing was that for him, there was something missing. Why was there such a lack of information about the young couple, the Vaughans? This was strange since they were central to why Carl Cox went to the cottage and played a key role in the events that followed. So, he decided to do his own research, including contacting members of the Vaughan family. We've set up a video call with Anthony, and he's about to give us an account of that night we've never heard before. On the night in question, um, they asked Carl Cox to uh, dinner in the cottage, and Paul Newman says that there was some sort of ritual that they all participated in, and this ritual went wrong, and the result was that Carr died. Um, Mr. Vaughan, he calls him John Vaughan. John Vaughan went uh, went mad, and uh, the his wife disappeared from history. One thing that really puzzled me, what, I wondered why did he say so little about the, the, the Vaughans? Mm. And as I researched the Vaughans, I found that the real people were very different from his portrayal of them. I mean, he even calls the, 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 the man John Vaughan when his real name is Gerald Vaughan. Gerald is you know, a fascinating person. Mm. You know, he came from this incredibly privileged background. His father was the, the manager of um, Gerald de Maurier's uh, theatre company. So, you know, as I understand it, he was involved in all the financial aspects of that, that theatre. So very wealthy man, went to Cambridge University in the 1930s to study philosophy, which at that time was called moral sciences. And then after Cambridge, Gerald for a year tried to become a sculptor, uh, but that came to nothing. He actually met Ellaline when they were in Cambridge. He was a student there as well. I'm not certain of that, but that, that's, that's what I think. And um, yeah, he, well, while he was at Cambridge, he became obsessed with D.H. Lawrence, he became his great hero, and so that, that's why he moved to Cornwall. They were living in, in their cottage in definitely in January 1937, and that's where they got married. So uh, when Gerald and Alaline moved into the cottage, uh, Alaline was already pregnant at that point, or became pregnant then? In the summer of 1937 they were traveling around Ireland so I assume she got pregnant then. Patrick was born in the cottage itself. It, yes that's right he was born in the cottage and so at the time of Carl mm. Cox's death Patrick was about five or six months old and um, Paul Newman doesn't mention him at all in his book. So um, the the story that's current I think and that seems to be most believed is that Carr Cox was suspicious of the goings-on up at the, at the cottage and was very concerned about an unspecified young woman who was very vulnerable, she felt, who lived at the cottage, which perhaps may have been Gerald's wife. Yeah. And that she went up to the cottage on that night of the 22nd of May, 1938, 
to investigate and to kind of come to the rescue of this vulnerable young woman, whereupon she stumbled on some satanic goings-on, which resulted in her terrible death. The And as you say before, Gerald Vaughan's madness uh, as a result of it. Around this time, Elaline was uh, beginning to show signs of mental illness and she was having hallucinations. And um, as I see it, around that time, uh, because Gerald and Elaline were incomers, that they, the, the, the locals were trying to drive them away, a bit like the locals were trying to drive away D.H. Lawrence, you know, many, many years earlier. So in the case of Gerald and his wife, they were like making strange noises at night outside the cottage. They were moving uh, stones around the cottage to make them feel uncomfortable. Now, because Elaline was beginning to have some sort of mental problems, Gerald wasn't sure if what she was telling him was what she was hallucinating or what was really happening. Ah. And so, as I understand it, uh, he invited Carcox up to the cottage to help him decide what was really happening and what was what what was uh, Elaine's hallucination. And it just happened that Car had a bad heart, and on the night she went for a meal in the cottage, she fell asleep after the meal and died in her sleep. Um, But um, there was there was no hint of anything magical or satanic that, 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 as, I, as far as I know. Is there anything that you've been able to discover about um, uh, Elaline? Yeah, she was beginning to show signs of mental problems um, around the time Patrick was born <laughs> and in, in the early part of 1938. And there came a time when, when Gerald was unable to look after her home and very reluctantly she went to uh, some sort of mental institution in Yorkshire and then he managed to bring her back to um, is it St Lawrence's in, 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 in Bodmin or, you know, a, a yes. mental institution in, 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 in Cornwall. Yeah. Um, but, but he still stayed in touch and, you know, wrote to her regularly, kept in contact, visited her. And then Gerald started farming. Uh, he needed somebody to look after Patrick, his young son. Pip Walker was a young girl who uh, offered to look after his young son. After a while, they, they became a couple and had three more, three more children. Um, all of the children became very successful. Uh, Patrick is, is still alive. He's about 80. He is a professor of medicine at the, or was a professor of medicine at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, uh, Oh, another interesting fact about Patrick is uh, he was married twice. His second wife um, had a daughter who married Gordon Brown. <laughs> so, <laughs> and and Patrick Vaughan, uh, Patrick Vaughan was one of the only twenty guests at the marriage of Gordon Brown and Sarah. Uh, they wanted to keep it uh, um, small. Yeah, six degrees of separation. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Patrick's sons. Yeah. They, they've all been very successful. Yes. But then I did receive an email from Mark Vaughan um, saying that Patrick is sick of this whole 
car cock story. I bet he is. And just wants to forget about it. Yeah. Which I find a bit strange because it's 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 uh, libeling his father, you know. It is, yeah. Point, painting his father as a Satanist, a drug taker, um, possibly a murderer. And, and so I'm amazed that he just wants to forget about it. Uh, but as I said, I did get an email from Mark Vaughan, and he said that my account is basically correct. He, 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 he was happy with that. I don't know when the story about uh, his involvement with Alistair Crowley originated, but that, that again is a blight on, on what, in, you know, light on his life you know they were by all accounts very decent people and it's really sad that this story has latched onto them Go another nice cup of Rosie Lee. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, very kind. I've got something. Oh, for you to have a look at. Um, okay. It's a, it's a family snap, and I mean, just have a look at this photograph and tell me what you can see. Um, it's kind of it's a group of one, two, three, four, five, six people different ages standing in what looks like a window or a doorway probably a doorway they look like a nice group of like a nice family you know probably yeah. quite well to do but not immensely wealthy but comfortably off well the boys in the picture those four are all Gerald Vaughan's sons no way uh, the, their mother mm. Pip is at the back of the photo there. That's their mother, Pip, in, okay. in the photo. And, you know, I do wonder how they must feel about how their dad's story has been oh, yeah. rewritten it's... for this myth, mm. this story of the cottage. Yeah. Appalled, I would think. Yeah. I mean, it's not appalled. as though they were themselves seeking any kind of... No. ...media interest or celebrity status. No. I kind of just wonder, you know, if if a, a member of your family had that associated, that story associated with them, how, mm. how you'd end up feeling. Mm. Well, you'd feel it would be impossible to own your own past, wouldn't you? Your own ancestry, somehow or other. That there's a story out there that's so strong and so powerful that whatever you say, you can't do anything about it. There's another photo I want to show you. Okay. Tell me what you can see. Okay, this is a photograph. It's a very old photograph. It's on a beach. Uh, in the background, there's a, a dog, kind of like a whippet Labrador cross. And in front of the dog, there's, a, there's an elderly man in some swimming trunks, big old-fashioned swimming trunks, sitting on a rock. And he's holding a child who's sitting on the on a higher rock next to him. A boy. Um, it's lovely. What do you like think a, the relationship like a, between the could two? Could be like a grandfather and a grandson posing for the camera. Kind of proud granddad. And smiling 
grandson. Close. They look like they're very close. The old man. Uh-huh. That's Alistair Crowley. What? No way. There's no way that's Alistair Crowley. And oh, my God. Uh, and the boy's his son. Where's the great beast? And they're on a beach in Cornwall. <laughs> wow. So his... The boy's mother was Patricia Doherty. She yeah. was from Newlyn. Yeah. You know, I'm sure Crowley wasn't your typical family man, but there he is, holiday snap. In that photograph, he looks like a... very much a typical family man. Just off, maybe, to make some sandcastles yeah, not, on not the beach. Nothing like the image that he... He presented of himself to the world. Now, the son that's in the photograph there. Yeah. What if I were to tell you that I found someone who knew him? Wow. Oh, my God. What in Cornwall? It's a place called Morva. Do you know where that is? Yeah, I know Morva. It's not far from Penzance. It's not far from all of the areas we're looking at, really. It's just across the moor from the cottage. Well... How about we take a trip down there, then? Fantastic. Right, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll make some tea, put it in a flask, and... Sandwiches? We have to make our way southeast along the coast. We'll have to go beyond Zena and follow a route full of dramatic, rocky headlands. But before we get there, Graham announces a tea break. <clears throat> Rest it there. Can you just say something for me, Anne? I've said two or stakeout. <laughs> right, OK. So we've... We're here now in Finland. <clears throat> Do you know what, Would Graham? I, I really appreciate the fact you've made me some sandwiches for my lunch. Yeah, this is... This is just thoughtful, and I'm going to get used to this, because I'm, you know... I know, me too. (laughs) And in films, when you see people eating and having a conversation, it always seems to be just completely intelligible. You don't kind of... No. No. People having a conversation like this. Mm. I'm assuming in TV drama, when they say, are you going to have this conversation with so-and-so over lunch? Does the director say, look... Make sure when you talk, you've actually chewed your food and swallowed it. There is TV eating, isn't there? So I might just do, I am eating, acting. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) What do you mean? Sometimes you see actors eating on screen and you think, but you don't really eat like that. What, because they're eating effetely or Yeah, I bet you really normally chow right down. Chomp on it. Making a huge noise. But if you write a scene where two people are eating, or in, in some hospitality environment, do you put, do you kind of write that into the script, or is it only the words you're interested in? <laughs> but you don't. Unless go it's to, relevant to the plot. Right. You don't go to the level of the fact that you want to make one character appear to be have a certain impression on the audience. So, for example, they. As my father used to describe it, not sure if you're familiar with this word, smalloc. Smalloc, no. And smalloking, when, um, he would define smalloking as... Yeah. My dad was a champion smalloker. 
Yeah, that's one of the things that interests me when you when you have to translate something which is perfectly normal into, say, a piece of television. Do you have to take it apart and put it back together again, or do you find some way of making it appear natural when, in fact, it's not? Because you are distilling what you want to do in that scene. You're obviously giving a television version of what is some two people chatting and sitting in a car (laughs) having a sandwich (laughs) on a stakeout Um, but you want to translate that into something which looks like convincing television well uh, from a scriptwriter's point of view you go interior exterior car country lane which is where we are now yeah Um, Ian sits in the passenger seat wearing headphones (laughs) <laughs> and dark glasses trying to appear, appear inconspicuous yeah Graham, I know but we are on a stake I don't want to be recognised Graham comma playing mum sits in the driving seat with an open um, an open bag on his lap which contains sandwiches and a flask of tea that's, and that's that would be it you wouldn't then go Ian Nibbles, well, you could do. Ian nibbles <laughs> effectively on his ham sandwich. So you were looking at right. me then when I was eating, <laughs> exactly. just start talking. Right. You're just taking it all in and you're exactly. going to use it in a script. Yeah. Right. And you could say, Graham, Graham, uh, Graham, his mouth full of ham, um, speaks incoherently <laughs> while scanning the surrounding environment. Yeah. Okay. So, so, well, I'd be interested to see this written up. So <laughs> exactly. You can write this up. Yeah. We can, uh, yeah, to get to, just to get a sense of how it all works Ooh. and how we might deploy it. Two o'clock. Time to rock and roll. At Marva, by the sea, we draw deep breaths. We keep our eyes wide-berthed to check the sea's delinquency, its randomness. There are no cast-off islands here, no belted reefs to mute the hammer blows of the sea's brute force, its high-handedness. The sea destroys itself at Morva, offloads spume and salt on the frantic wind, while clouds like Amalia muster on the rim of the Atlantic's taut horizon. This is a berth to brace against a storm when Cornwall dips and slides beneath the blows of the earth shakers and rocks root down to the widow maker. We've come to see Des Hannigan, a man with the strong sinewy frame of a climber, albeit an elderly one. He came here from Scotland in the 1960s and never left. Since then, he's been a successful journalist, travel writer, photographer, and, as you might have noticed, a poet. He's going to tell us how he came to meet Alistair Crowley's son, who was at the time also known as Alistair. Des was working in Newlyn, near a house called Wheel Betsy, that had been built for the artists Caroline Burland Yates and Thomas Cooper Gotch. I was working at the top of Newlyn Hill, on this estate of bungalows. Yep. Uh, and Alistair lived at Wheel Betsy, which was his, I think, his grandfather's house. Thomas Gotch, the painter, had built Wheel Betsy. Um, so he was living there at the time with his mother. 
and half, his half sisters, I think. And the um, the estate was pretty ramshackle. Or the organisation was, and uh, they decided to pack up for the winter, but they needed someone there to look after it. So I was looking there with a friend of mine, Russ Hedges, who was a painter, because we were all, you know, this was you know, before I went fishing. This was way back, just before that. So we were kind of looking for work everywhere. Yeah. So we used to do a bit of labouring and so on. So we were working there. Alistair was working there. So the people were organising a site all cleared off and said, well, we need someone to look after it. Alistair was the most <laughs> studious one, they thought. Was so it? Alistair, yes, you've got a serious man. So Alistair and Russ and myself spent the, the winter months sort of tidying up, digging ditches and so on, trying to put to right various things that had gone wrong yeah. in the basic way. So that's how I knew Alistair. And he was he was lovely, really. You know, he was a, he was very... I wouldn't say he wasn't a simple man, but in, in the best possible way, he was an uncomplicated man, but deeply eccentric too. Uh, but um, how does that go together? I, it was it was a strange one, really. Um, he was, I suppose, again the word naive is not the word I would use. He was just very open, yeah. but he had peculiarities in a way. His, he dressed always, and jodhpurs were a big thing with him, yeah. and, a, and a riding crop. Um, and troubled. He was troubled all his life. Was he? Yeah. What by do you think? Um, you know, people might say, oh, it's because of his father and all the stones around him. But I don't think so. I think it was just possibly he'd been a bit pillar to post in his life too. Right. You know, I mean, I, the thing, I always have that caveat. I didn't know much about his background, so I knew him simply knew was, as yeah. a person. And working in, as we were working, this was hands-on you know, rough labouring work, which which is a great, um, it's a great kind of levelling thing. It is. Did he ever talk about his father at all? Not at all. And we did not broach that. No, but you knew who his we father knew, was. Of course. But, yeah. but, but he never out. dined out on it. Not at all. No. Not at all. Never went mentioned him at any time. Did you know his mum? I met her, yes, Deirdre. Deirdre. I didn't know her particularly, and Deirdre was quite one massively eccentric, really. Was she? Yes, yes. I mean, and um, I, the only couple of times I met Deirdre, she was always she'd be glowering a bit, a bit frowning. You oh, know? was she? Hmm. But intense. But I didn't know. Her, I didn't meet her enough to to actually. Um, and eccentric in what way? Um, just, well, the house was. <laughs> quite, was it? Quite, quite fascinating. Yeah. Um, I didn't, there was a time when she, she adopted or she fostered a lot of children. There were times when uh, his, there would be a bit of a uproar from the house because it was right next to where we were working on this infamous pink estate. And uh, we would hear this and Alistair would start to look slightly embarrassed by this. We wouldn't, he wouldn't say anything. So we'd be working away and Russ and I would be sort of like, oh, they're at it again. Shrieking and shouting. I think all the girls and the mother and shouting. And Alice would suddenly go, oh, excuse me, you need to go off dum, 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 in the corner. And we used to time it and say, any minute now, there'll be a cut-off of the noise. The minute he, obviously, Alistair had arrived, absolute silence finished. And then he'd come walking back again. And he'd say, sorry about that. <laughs> it was wonderful. This is what I'm saying. He was a lovable man, really. Yeah. You know, I'm very fond of him. Well, it sounds like his mother was, too. Yes, she was.
thing that struck me when you were talking to Des is that these are real stories and we've been hearing from real people about what happened. And in a way, for me, they're much more interesting than the myths. But it's the myth that seems to persist. I mean, why do you think that is? Whoa, that's the kind of at the heart of everything, isn't it? Why does the myth persist when the real story doesn't? In Cornwall, everything seems to me to be about myth and legend and story. It's about the past. The past is almost as present as the present in Cornwall. Um, I don't know if I'm over-romanticizing that, but that's often what it feels like. People celebrate the past and they celebrate their myths. Uh, they celebrate the seasons. The, 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 it's not just landscape, it's, it's, it's weather and seasons and, and everything is so changeable and so alive here um, that, that I, I think that contributes to, to, to the reality of events, if you like, becoming myth and the truth being lost to, to the myth. The other thing about hearing from Des was this relationship that uh, Crowley had with his son and I, I've got a confession to make oh yeah I've been down the library again <laughs> and I found well I took a copy of this it's it's a letter from Alistair Crowley uh -huh. to his 10 year old son which he must have written just before he died. Oh, God. How amazing. And it starts off, My dear son, this is the first letter that your father has ever written to you. So you can imagine that, that it will be, be very important. important. And, and you, you should, should keep, keep it and lay it by your heart. First of all, let me tell you how intensely happy your reappearance has made me. I feel that I must devote a great deal of my time to watching over your career. One of the wisest men of olden time gave this instruction to his pupils. Know thyself. And learning Latin helps you to do this, and I regard this as very important indeed. There are a great many people going about today who tell you that Latin is no use to you in the ordinary affairs of life. And that's quite true if you're going to be some commonplace person like a tradesman or a bank clerk. But you are a gentleman. And if you want to be an educated gentleman, you must know Latin. There's one more point that I want to impress to you. The best models of English writings are Shakespeare and the Old Testament especially the book of Job, the Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. It will be a very good thing for you to commit as much as you can both of these books and of the best plays of Shakespeare to memory, so that they form the foundation of your style. Love is the law. Love under will. Your affectionate father. You know, there is someone in this investigation of ours that we've let get away. We haven't got anywhere close to him. I mean, the closest we've got to him is that letter 
to his son. And he's just kept completely out of the spotlight. I mean, you know, the ghost hunters call the cottage Crowley's Cottage. That's the only person they go there to contact. And he is somehow out there in the landscape. And we just haven't, we just haven't noticed. No, we haven't noticed, have we? We've been, our eyes and focus have been on other things. But actually, what's been conjured out of this landscape is a sense of who someone is, of who that man is that may have some vestige of truth in it. But, but the real person inside, inside the, the invention you know, both the self-invention and the way other people have invented him. Who is that real person? So, there it is. This curious question of how a man who courted so much publicity could spend time at the cottage in Cornwall, but apparently leave no trace of ever having been there. How has he become so closely associated with the cottage? And why... Are there so many stories about him in this part of Cornwall? If you have any theories or thoughts on this, please do let me and Graham know. You can find us on social media with the handle One Dark Podcast. It would be great to hear from you. Next time, we finally close in on Alistair Crowley and we experience something that many of the ghost hunters can only dream of. We hear his voice talking to us. Do join us for the next episode 